We're going to dismiss the children to Children's Church and Children's Choir at this time. And pray God's blessing on you as you continue to meet. And we're so thankful that uh, you're here with us. We had a great day in our basketball league yesterday once again. And it's such a privilege to have these young ones uh, in our ministry. And also for those that uh, serve by teaching and leading and working with them. Solomon, you helping out today? All right. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) All right. Any more? <laughs> okay. You know, we're going to open the Bible this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, if you open your Bible there, we began last week a new series from the book of uh, Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews in our um, uh, morning service here. And we're going to continue today with uh, chapter 2. And I'd just like to begin with the word of prayer, if you don't mind. Father, as we open your word um, we do never, uh, we do not ever take for granted the freedom we have to come and worship freely, the freedom we have to share your word, to read it, to contemplate it, to meditate on it, and to apply it to our lives. Pray for our children as they are meeting. We thank you for the leaders who spend time working with them. We pray you'll uh, place your word in their hearts through music and lessons today. And we just pray for the rest of the activities of this day that will bring honor and glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This week, as I was preparing this message and studying from Hebrews chapter 2, I had a, just a, I don't know how to describe it, just kind of a sense that after I read through it and did a little work in the original language, with a little bit I could, and some of the commentaries, some old commentaries, some new commentaries, and I reread it and contemplated it. I had this kind of, uh, well, for lack of better, this sort of sense of sort of standing on holy ground in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 2. And um, to the point that, you know, as I try to outline my messages so they, you know, kind of make sense, hopefully you've noticed that, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was a little difficult. It just seemed a little arbitrary with this chapter to try to, outline it and um, uh, it's just there's something about this chapter that touches on uh, some just absolutely critical parts of our understanding as Christians and our understanding of Christ our Lord Jesus Christ who when he was on earth said I I am I am the way I am the truth I'm the life I am the gate to the sheepfold Uh, others are robbers and stealers but I'm the true gate and he says I have come I learned it early on in King James I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Some of the newer translations say things like more meaningful, more fulfilling. I kind of like the word more abundantly. We talk about the abundant life that Jesus offers to you and to me. How did this happen? How did he accomplish this? In Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see um, how this was accomplished according to the author of this epistle. I'm going to clear my throat, so if I can ask the sound guy to mute me for a second. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll do that. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Thanks, Mike. Got it. All right. It's kind of like at the symphony. Okay. So, <clears throat> chapter 2. Let's, let's look at it. I want to, I want to really focus on uh, the middle part, but I think it's important that we look at the beginning uh, as well, and the ending uh, will lead into next week. 
The author, after in chapter 1, if you notice, again, if you have any kind of newer translation, you'll notice all the Old Testament quotations in chapter 1. Basically, we have an introduction we looked at last week in verses 1 to 5, and then you have commentary on using Old Testament to solidify his points. And it really, uh, the emphasis, I think, in verse 8, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And we looked at how the, this chapter clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is that was the agent of creation. He is God himself. The author calls him, by using Old Testament scriptures, he calls him God. And it, uh, it, it's a strong um, uh, argument and, and strong apologetic for the truth that Jesus truly is God himself. Not below God. It's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are all equally God. And everything that, that the Father is, in terms of essence or substance, the Son is and the Spirit is as well. He is fully God. And in chapter 2, we get to see, I think, the other part of it that is so essential to our faith as Christians, and that is that He is fully human. And I think it's so appropriate, just having finished the Christmas, the Christmas and Advent season, that we come to this passage. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so we do not drift away. Now, remember, this epistle has the title in our Bible to the Hebrews. It has, the church has, from the earliest century, first century, has understood that this had a special meaning to Hebrew believers. That's why it's called the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, they are Christ ones. They are Christians. So there is application to us. But there is a special application and um, attention given to these Hebrew believers and also to the author, his fellow Hebrews. And, 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 he, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a plea here. Let's pay attention to what we've heard, that we do not drift away. The idea of drift here would be um, an anchor that is, you know, that is dropped to keep a ship in harbor. But to, to maybe lose that anchor and to slowly drift with the tide or the waves, to, to drift slowly away. You, maybe you've been in a situation where you maybe you've been out on an air mattress, huh? In a lake, and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like much further than you planned to be on the air mattress and you have to get back. Um, you've drifted and not really realized it. And he says, we must pay attention. Otherwise, we're going to drift away from the truth of what we are talking about, the truth of the essential feature of what I have to say to you, what we have been preaching. And then he argues this, this argument, which is typical in Hebrew literature, from the lesser to the greater and the greater to the lesser. He says, if the message spoken by angels, and we saw this in chapter 1, this was a big deal to first century Judaism, much bigger than we, than we talk about. They talked a lot about angels. The rabbis talked a lot about angels. The rabbis talked about, uh, you know, this idea when Jesus talked about their angels look over them. This fit perfectly well with rabbinic understanding. We're going to see in this passage here that they, that according to Deuteronomy, the angel, there was some, the rabbis taught a mediatory role, the angels in the giving of the Mosaic law. And, and so this is important to them. But he says, if the message spoken by angels, and that comes from Deuteronomy, and the rabbinic interpretation of that, that they understood it. If the message spoken by angels, the Mosaic Law, was binding, and every violation and disobedient received this just punishment, how much more? How shall we then escape if we ignore such 
great salvation. And the lesser is the greater. If that was so important and that was binding, how much more is the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are presenting today? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it. You notice by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This idea of signs, wonders, and miracles. Listen, friends, in the Old, in the Old Testament and New Testament, the gift of signs and miracles and wonders was never something that just was in itself. It, it, it always had to do with the validating the message. I mean, think back when there, there are three times in Israel's history where there's like an explosion of signs and miracles. The first was the contest with Pharaoh. You know, that contest with Pharaoh, that took place over a, a period of a year. That land was just devastated to the point where the people were begging Pharaoh, let them go. What's wrong with you? Get him out of here. And, and Pharaoh's heart just kept getting stronger against God. That's what it means when it says, it says his heart was strengthened against God's heart. And there was those miracles. And when Moses says, they're not going to believe me. And who am I? And God says, put your hand in your clothes. Take it out. Throw your staff on the ground. Pick it up. The serpent. Go before the people. Turn the water to blood. Bring darkness. Bring the boils. Bring the frogs. Bring all these miracles and all these, these things that devastated the locusts. And one thing after another that devastated this land. It was these miracles. It was trying to get people's attention. Listen, you better take, you better listen. God is at work. God is doing something. And it was also for the Israelites to get their attention that your God is the God of the universe. We have a second explosion of miracles under Elijah and Elisha and the stories that take place with those two prophets of one miracle after another at a critical juncture in Israel's history. Listen, you better pay attention. You are at a, you are at a fault line. It's time to do this. It's time to change. And then we have the Gospels. When the Lord Jesus Christ came, why did he do miracles? Why did the apostles in the early part of Acts, why were they doing these miracles and signs? It was never just as a, as a means, as an end in itself. It was a means to an end. Jesus could, have, Jesus could have saved a lot of time by just saying, look at everybody in Galilee, everybody in Judea, you're healed. It's done with. Okay, quit. Let's, let's get down to the teaching now. But he did it one by one, one by one, nine, ten, ten, ten at a time, one, one man with a thousand demons, one by, he touched, he actually took time to touch them. People touched him, Lady Touchman, and, and Jesus said, who touched me? He spoke to them. He, one, why? It was to affirm, it was to validate the message. And when, the, and when the apostles in early Acts did their miracles, it was never an end in itself. Peter made it clear, listen, this is the power of God. You better listen. Israel, this is a critical time. Listen. And the apostle Paul, on, a, on his trip to Rome and with, with, with healing and, and the things in the shipwreck, it was to get to listen. And the author here says, listen, this is confirmed to us. God is doing something. We better listen. The signs and the wonders and the miracles, the apostolic gifts that, that accompanied the apostles as they brought this message, it was to get their attention. Listen, God is at work. What does it take? What does it take for you and for me sometimes for God to get our attention? You ever, you ever, thought, you ever been in that situation? Like, what, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And, and God is getting their attention. Now look at verse 5. 
It is not to angels. We're back to angels. His angels keeps coming up. This is a big deal to them. But it wasn't to angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. This is kind of interesting. If we go into this whole study, this apostle obviously knows where this comes from. It's like somebody once said, well, yeah, Psalm chapter 8, okay, which he knew verbatim, he knew by heart. And, of course, the people and the rabbis knew by heart. They said, here's what the person said. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. And you put everything under his feet. End of quote, Psalm chapter 8. In putting everything under him, which is Christ, he's obviously, this letter so far, we're talking about Jesus. God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present time, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little. So how did this, let me stop for a minute here. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 8 which was not typically understood by the rabbis as what we call a messianic psalm. There were Old Testament passages that the rabbis and the Jews looked at and clearly said, this is talking about our coming Messiah. This was not one of them. You won't find this in rabbinical teaching. Psalm chapter 8 is not a rabbinical psalm. Why does the author of Hebrews quote this as part of this affirmation of the Messiahship of Jesus? Well, the connection is that Jesus himself, uh, this, look, we got a minute here, go back. I'm going to get you on time today. Say amen if you believe that. Amen. All right, thank you. That wasn't a score, was it there, Chris? It was a, that was a real amen, right? Okay. All right, the Matthew, look at, look at, um, look at Matthew, um, what were they saying? Uh, Matthew chapter 21. And you'll see here that this psalm, Psalm chapter 8, it has an earlier portion that the Lord quotes in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 16 on Palm Sunday. When, when the rabbis, when, when the Lord was crying, when, when the children were crying out, and in verse 16, the, 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 the people, the rabbis and leaders, the chief priests and teachers, it says they were indignant about what the children were saying. Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Verse 16 do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. And Jesus says, yes, I know what they're saying. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. That is the first part of Psalm chapter eight. No, they did not thought about that as a, as a messianic teaching. But the Lord Jesus Christ clearly ascribes Psalm chapter eight on Palm Sunday as a messianic psalm. So therefore, when the writer of Hebrews takes this middle part of that psalm and, and applies it to the Messiah, yes, it is a Messianic psalm. It makes perfectly good sense. What is man? You are mindful of him. The son of man. You made him lower. You made him a little lower than the angels. You took the son of man. And when he came to earth, when he was born in Bethlehem, you made him a little lower than the angels. Even though the psalmist seems to be talking about humanity and you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because of what? Because he suffered death. Now listen, friend, this, is, this is where I just, you know, reading this passage, 
contemplating it and coming back to it, I, I felt, I, I don't mean this disrespectful, but when, you know, standing on holy ground here, I mean, you need to think about this. You need to look at this. He suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Think of that. Let it sink in, friends. Because he suffered God. God. We're talking about God here. We're talking about God. Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 1, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. He suffered death so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. He suffered death. You know, it's interesting. This this past week in uh, um, in the newspaper, where did I put that there? Did I leave it down? There's a piece of newspaper down there somewhere, you guys. <clears throat> you aren't sitting nice there. Sitting, no, I'm going to find. It. Here it is. Here it is. Thank you. Yesterday, uh, let's see. Friday, Friday, Seattle Times, in the uh, entertain uh, the weekend section, they do a little. They do a book book review, you know, once a week. And uh, the book review readings, the, the column is called, is how the fear of death, how the fear of death shapes life. And you know, I, I, I know I hesitate because someone says, "Oh, you come to church and, and you know and hear about death. You guys are always talking about death and dying and so on." Well, the reality is, if we're talking about eternal life and the hope of eternal life, then yes, death is, is something that we have to contemplate. These these, these psychologists. Sheldon Solomon is the lead one. Three psychologists. Given the inevitability of death and its power to render human life meaningless, why read a book about this existential quandary? The authors of such book ask. Furthermore, they ask, why write it? The book is called The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life by these three psychologists. It was written by three professors of psychology who have set out to show that death and more accurately, the foreknowledge and fear of it influence all human, all human behavior and how humans manage the terror of death. The recognition of this came from a book by Ernest Becker, a cultural anthropologist who was up here in Burnaby, British Columbia, died in 1974, two months before his book, won a Pulitzer Prize, The Denial of Death. He argued that unconscious efforts to deny and transcend death are behind much of human activity. And they wrote their book to, they did studies, actual empirical studies to prove this point. And these three psychologists have written a whole book on this. The fear of death. You know, Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> I just don't want to be there when it happens. It's a little humorous, but this is a reality. I went to the, I went to Krista this week to visit some of our friends. Ruby Anderson's recovering from her 
her fall. Um, Doris, Meyer, uh, Doris Nelson is home recovering from her surgery, and also Harold Perkheiser fell and broke his hip a week ago, this weekend too. He's at the Foss home. I went over to Chris to see some of our friends, and I wanted to go see Anna Bloomquist. So I, I, uh, I stopped by the desk and said, I, you know, I, I thought she was in this room here, but I, where is she? What room is she in? Hey, you know, you got to be a little careful about information they give out today, you know. And so they kind of disappeared, came back and said, well, she's gone. Well, I knew right away what she meant. I said, oh, she died. Yeah, she died on Sunday. Anna, I think it was 101 going on 102, if I got that right. And, um, and you know, Anna, uh, Anna died. She's gone. She's gone. She died. But she went somewhere. And we believe she's with the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this. It's true. The fear of death does, if people really will be honest about it, it, it's there. It's there. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered death by God's grace so he might taste death for everyone. Why? Why did he have to do that? I mean, you know, it, it boggles the mind, really. I mean, if, if you just stop and think about it, and you think about eternity, and you think about the expanse of God's created universe, and you think about the speck that our life is here, I mean, if you really stop and just contemplate these big ideas, why? Did God become a, why did he become a human? And why in Bethlehem of Judea? And why did he have to go to the cross and, and, and suffer death? Why? Why did he have to do that? Why was that the plan? It's in this chapter. Let's, let's read on. Verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Wait a minute now. The one who makes people holy and those of us, these Jews he's writing to, who are made holy are of the same family. I have a family. My kids are here. My grandkids are here. Teresa and I have a family. He says, they're of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, I know we we could be careful with that. There's there's on one hand, there's this brotherhood of Jesus that can get kind of trite and sort of ridiculous. But on the other hand, there is a reality to it. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers because he became our brother. He became like us in every way we're going to read here. But look at the passage here. Here's another passage in the Old Testament. I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. This is a Messianic passage. Why is this a Messianic passage? Look at your footnotes. Look down at your notes. Most of your Bibles will have a note. Where is this from? Psalm 22. 
Go home and read Psalm 22, one of the clearest Messianic passages that describes the death on the cross. Clearly a Messianic passage. It comes from that. And again, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, and then verse 18. I will put my trust in him. Here am I, and the children God has given me. Old Testament passages to show that the Lord Jesus Christ truly became our brother, became human. Look what he says here. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too... Come on, friends. Think about this. Think about what this means. He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held slavery. What was that? How the fear of death shapes life. The worm at the core on the roll of death by Sheldon Solomon, 2016. And free those who all their lives were held slavery by their fear of death. I don't have much to outline. I don't have much to add to this. I would like this morning, if you would just think about this. Jesus Christ fully shared in my humanity. Look back over your life. What is your human condition? We got all sorts of we got all sorts of ages here. We got people here in their nineties. We got teenagers here. Look back over your life. What have been the things that have shaped your life? Somebody dying that you love very dearly that, that you weren't that wasn't supposed to die. having been picked up and moved out of one environment maybe to another where it was all of a sudden pretty scary. Coming to know Christ as Savior. Dealing with temptations that maybe you're still dealing with. That you thought, man, by now I was sure I'd be done with this. <laughs> you know, I'm old enough now. What are the things that shape your life? What are the things that have shaped your life? Friends, listen. The author of Hebrews said, He has shared in my humanity. You know, we can't, you can't, you can't clean that up. Yes, he never sinned. He never sinned. But Judea is a real place. Galilee is a real place with real people and real dirt and real hurts and real temptations. Jesus was three years old at one time. Jesus was a teenager at one time. Those you teenagers, Jesus was a teenager at one time. He had friends. He had siblings. He had he was an oldest of brothers and sisters who wouldn't even who thought he was crazy when he was an adult. Read it in the Gospels. Jesus worked hard. Jesus had friends and lost friends. Jesus went through everything we went through. 
You know, somewhere along the line, Jesus' dad is gone. Right? Where's Joseph in the stories of the Gospels? His earthly father died. Given the culture that time, he probably had siblings that died. Normally it would have been maybe 30-40%. Jesus was human. You can't whitewash it. You can't clean it. You can't change it. You can't, you can't paint pictures of him like he was born in France with, you know, nothing against the French here. But I mean, <laughs> I've been to Israel. I've been there. It's a tough neighborhood. It's a tough neighborhood today. But he was perfect. And he never sinned. And he died. He died. He died. When he closed his eyes on the cross of Calvary, when he said it is finished, he died. He suffered horribly. Why? And here's the thing that really fascinated me about this passage. And I don't know where I've been, why I didn't catch this before. But it took an author from 100 years ago to point this out. The emphasis here is not on the resurrection. It's not even mentioned. It's not even mentioned. The emphasis is on his death. Because he died, he assumed my humanity so fully, every aspect of it, that he was then able to die in my place. Because in order to suffer death, he had to become human. Angels don't die. He had to become human. He had to become, it was the only way. And when he died in the cross of Calvary, God's anger against my sin, because he's a righteous and holy God, was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. He somehow in that hours of darkness suffered my punishment for my sin, 63 years worth of my sin on the cross of Calvary. He suffered it. He died. He paid for it. And God's wrath was satisfied. He tasted death for me. Why? Why did he do that? I mean, look at me. Why would he do that? Because he chose to love me. He chose to love me. And he chose and chooses to love you. And because of that, you know what? The best way to live your life is free from the fear of death. Yeah, we'll talk about death. It's okay. I'm going to talk about it. Because the best way to live your life, the best way to enjoy life, the best way to enjoy your friends, the best way to enjoy beautiful music, the best way to go watch a football game and to have fun and realize it's not a matter of life and death. Really, it's not. (laughs) It's okay to have fun. It's okay to enjoy life. Why? Because of all people, we have been given 
the blessing of living life free from the fear of death. What do we have to be afraid of? When Anna Bloomquist left this life last Sunday, she didn't die. She went from here to there. I am not going to have to die. I'll quit breathing. My heart will stop beating. My brain will stop. But I'm not going to die. Because the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that mortality is swallowed up by life. It's swallowed up by life. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And that's because we aren't afraid of the future and of death and of humanity because Jesus tasted every single bit of it without sin because he loves you. And it was the only way. I'm going to leave the rest of the chapter to lead into chapter 3 as we begin to consider the Lord's ministry as high priest. The priest and the sacrifice and the king all wrapped up into one. So let me close with this passage. I'm just going to close with this. And then John can come up and lead our closing song. And then Brother Tim Heath can come and close the service in prayer. I'm going to invite you to come again tonight and share in our missionary ministry. The Apostle Paul. I know he wrote this one because he signed it. Okay, <laughs> Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude, my attitude, your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made, made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This should be our attitude. This should be our attitude if we are Christ ones and we are going to live an abundant life and enjoy life free from the fear of death and the fear of anything because he has already been there for us and for you. Amen. Amen. It's five minutes to 12. We go. On October 1st, 1915, or 2015, uh, a man came with a gun and in Roseburg, Oregon, said, Are you a Christian? And if they said yes, is bam! And he was killed. She was killed. And the challenge today is, uh, we only have one life, and it really goes fast. And only what's done for Christ will really, truly, undeniably last. And why does a person, a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, be willing to give his life, 
to go to another country, to live in another culture, and to be willing to do that simply because he loves God. Why, why would we do that? And I want to share tonight, and I want to encourage you tonight to bring a person uh, that's not here. You come back, bring a person because of Myra's testimony and what God is doing through her in Cambodia and what God is doing through Things to Come Mission in many parts of the world. We want to share that with you because you're a part of it. And you're a wonderful part of it. And we want you to see that you have great value and encouragement in the overall body of Christ worldwide. And we really would like you to come to Southeast Asia on our Asia adventure that uh, leaves May and comes back in June. Um, and I'll be back at the table on my left, your right. Well, as you're going out, it'll be on the left. If you would like to either sign up on our mailing list or to get a, a, a flyer to go to Southeast Asia, we would love to have you come. It's a powerful, wonderful time for you to be encouraged and for you to encourage other members of the body of Christ who appreciate so deeply your willingness to come. So if you thought about it, if you still are struggling with it, I want to encourage you to make that effort to make that sacrifice and come in May. So uh, let, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that uh, as it has been so clearly shared with us today, that we do not fear death. And it's not because we are psychologically psyched up. It is because you took the death that we deserved so that we could have the life that only you could give. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection for us who didn't deserve it but have received it by grace. May you be glorified as we live our lives totally and fully and completely for you. And we give you the praise in our Savior's name. Amen. Have a good afternoon.